and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. We often talk about how people today are dealing with a lot more financial precarity than they have in the past. They don't have the same level of stability that jobs used to provide. But we often talk about it very much in the abstract sense. We, we say that, oh, people don't have enough of an emergency fund to deal with a lot of things that come up. But it's still a step away from really understanding what that experience actually means to people. And our guest today embarked on a very extensive research project to find out what does it actually mean to have financial insecurity, to not know what your paycheck's going to be the next week or the next month, and to constantly be juggling the various aspects of life to make ends meet on a basic level. So we're very happy to be joined by Rachel Schneider. Uh, the author of The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. She is a senior vice president of the Center for Financial Services Innovation. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm delighted to have this conversation. So the Financial Diaries Project takes a really granular look at the lives of families across America. What do these portraits reveal that publicly available financial data does not so the idea of the project was to go deep, and we had field researchers in 10 different locations in the country, and each field researcher met with the families that they were working with every few weeks and tried to gather data about every single dollar that went in and out of the house, every dollar that was earned, saved, spent, borrowed. And that's very different than usual financial studies. So we have a massive amounts of data in the U.S. collected by all sorts of different organizations, it's usually a snapshot in time, right? What's, what is your savings today? Or what is your total income? Which is very different than seeing how money moves through a family over time. That emphasis on cash flows is really unique, mostly because it's so hard to do as a data collection effort. So you write about financial instability as a highly variable life in which things can be manageable or quite difficult on a month-to-month or even week-to-week basis. What does that actually look like? What does that instability look like in real terms? Sure. And it really is a feature of this kind of research that we could see that because we could compare incomes month over month. So, And that was really the starting point for our analysis. So within our sample, which I should say was a lower to middle income sample, What we saw is that in five months of the year, income was more than 25% more or 25% less than the average income. So paychecks were swinging really wildly. So that starts to give you this picture right off, right? That somebody who's making, you know, $36,000 a year, that doesn't mean they're earning $3,000 every month. They're earning sometimes $4,500 and sometimes $1,500. Because the swings we saw were actually that big, right? They were often um, 50% more, 50% less than the average income. And so the ways that people manage their money, it wasn't about saying, well, this is my annual income, and so I can divide that by 12 and know what my monthly budget is. It was more about sitting down on Sunday night to figure out, well, what is my paycheck going to bring this week? Which bills should I pay? Which bills should I put off? And you even found that... This instability, well, it's obviously related to income, but it also creeps into the lives of many middle and even high-income families. They have some of these same issues. So what's going on there? 
national studies have found the same thing, and and particularly the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute did a study looking at their data set where they see volatility creeping up really high into the income spectrum. And the Federal Reserve has also been asking this question in their annual survey of household and economic decision-making, and they're finding that people report volatility. So it is worse at lower and moderate incomes. Nonetheless, this is a feature of many people's economic lives. And, you know, what's happening really is a change in how people get paid for the work that they do. And people who had earned tits always had variability in their income. But now what you're seeing is more and more companies are able to shift the risk that there will be ups and downs in demand for their services onto their workers, right? So retailers of all sizes can have practices where they send workers home when the store is not busy. Or if they're big enough and good enough at data analytics, they can estimate how many workers are we going to need on Wednesday. And they can have dynamic scheduling practices that they're really flexing their labor costs up and down with demand. And that is a huge driver of the kind of volatility that we saw. For the most part, what we saw is that people are experiencing ups and downs in their paychecks from the same job. So it's people who have steady work, they're full-time, possibly gainfully employed at the same job for an extensive period, but they nonetheless don't have a steady income. So given this shift in risk from the company side to the individual side and this variability that really hasn't existed to the same degree in the past for most people, how is that practically affecting people's decision-making? What are the choices that they end up having to make because of this? Well, what it really does is it brings your budgeting closer in, right? So it's harder to think about the long term if you have to wonder what next week's paycheck will bring. And it means that you're going to spend a lot more of your energy figuring out what bills to pay. And that's the energy that could have been spent on, how do I save for retirement? How do I invest in a home? The financial issues people are worried about are the issues of the next three months, the next 12 months, and not the next three years, the next 12 years. What does that mean in terms of someone's ability to switch careers or even just switch jobs? You know, I'm glad you raised it that way. You know, we didn't, so so I should say Jonathan Mordock and I wrote a book about these research findings, and we didn't talk about it quite this way in the book, but what I've come to think as we, you know, as our ideas evolved and as we have this kind of conversation with more and more people is that we should be saying in a very sharp way that when people feel more risk, it is harder to take on additional risk, right? So you need a baseline kind of cushion, a sense of security to be able to take risk. And I think of that, you know, through the story of somebody we told in the book, a woman named Sarah Johnson, who is absolutely taking on risk. She's working part-time so that she can go to school full-time, you know, part-time in addition to raising kids. So she's incredibly busy. She's going to school in her late 30s. And by the time she graduated, she was 40 um, because she wanted a better life for herself and her kids, right? She had gone back to college since she didn't finish when she was younger. And Doing that, like taking on that risk, really exacerbated the risk that she felt in her current life, right? So she was working fewer hours, so her income's lower. She's relying on student loans and student aid 
which comes into your life in a lumpy way, right? She'd get big checks in September and February. So that increased volatility as well. And also, of course, then she'll have to pay back that debt. And she already has a mortgage and some medical debt. So adding to her debt load is really meaningfully adding to her risk level. And so the steps that she's taking to try and gain mobility are steps that destabilize her today. And so you know, we, we want to think in America that it's all about mobility. How can we get people to move forward and upward in their lives? And we tend to sort of de-emphasize the idea of providing people with basic stability, but the two are really intertwined. And if you don't give Sarah enough stability today, she's going to fail in her climb for mobility. So that seems like a great moment to, to pivot to the next topic, which is thinking about the, the families that you were viewing and, and talking to and seeing, how would their lives change if everyone received a monthly cash transfer, unconditional, somewhere between a few hundred and say a thousand dollars a month? You know, so in theory, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners believe this already, right? In theory, that baseline stability is that baseline cash transfer should provide a baseline of stability that people couldn't fall beneath. And I think it is very different to think about sort of knowing you will always get a certain dollar amount and then the amount you earn fluctuates above that amount versus fluctuating around zero. Um, so I think that could be meaningful. I think the real question you have to wonder is, is there an amount of basic income that we could deliver that would actually deliver that that level of stability? And I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying that from a cost, can we afford it perspective, which I know is a whole separate argument, but just even in the really expensive, ambitious version where you're going to give somebody, you know, several thousand dollars a year, or, you know, I don't, I don't know what the most ambitious versions out there are. You two would be way more knowledgeable than me about this. Would that, what we don't know is, is that amount enough to give people a baseline level of stability? Would you actually solve this stability challenge with that dollar amount? I don't, I actually don't know. Do you have a sense as to if we're talking about variable amounts, is there a nonlinear point where suddenly a certain amount qualitatively changes the experience for people? I don't know. I'd say that's what's so intriguing to me about the basic income. Like if you, if you just, does it take away some level of the worry? Cause you know, you'll always have this check coming in, right? I think that's one of the really, really interesting questions to figure out. My intuition is yes. Um, but I don't think we'd, the diaries research isn't enough to say that for sure. I think what the diaries research tells us is instability is a real phenomenon on its own, like a separate problem. So you can talk about whether or not people have enough money, and that's an important conversation to have. You also really do have to talk about what is the structure of that money in their life, and does the structure of that money, the way it comes in, the timing, the certainty of it, that also matters, right? And so that's part of why I've been so intrigued by the basic income conversation, because it, it starts to get to that issue. You mentioned taking away the worry. If a basic income mostly just did that for these families. Like their lives were pretty similar, but they didn't have to, you know, constantly be thinking about their budget and if they're going to fall below zero. Uh, what sort of effect would just that have to remove that emotional strain? You know, again, I should be clear that I'm I'm not speaking directly from the diaries research because we didn't ask this question. But I think it is really worth. Like my intuition is that it would matter, and I'm I'm being unclear. But let me back up and sort of answer it through a story, which is which is often how I think now as a result of the diaries. 
um, another couple that we got to know, husband and wife named Jeremy and Becky, um, with some kids who lived in Ohio, they had a very volatile financial life because Jeremy worked fixing trucks. And so he earned based on commissions and trucks don't break down in an even steady ways. His paychecks were not even or steady. And he actually made the choice to switch to a lower paying job that had a worse commute because he'd get a steady salary. And so it's just evocative to me. Like people do value steadiness on its own. And so Becky was spending a lot of effort figuring out which bills to pay when. She was had a, had a system for it and she was good at it, but she was paying, you know, presumably sometimes paying late fees because she wasn't able to pay every single bill every month. Many people in the diary sample are paying overdraft fees. They're paying for high cost kinds of credit. All of those are functions of volatility. And if you had a steadier financial life, my assumption is you might therefore be able to budget easier, pay less on late fees and penalties, pay less expensive prices for credit. Sort of takes one thing off the table of of your mental to-do list. So you've talked about this a little bit already, but I'm curious to know what what are the things that you'd like or see potential in with basic income and what are the concerns that you have around it? Sure. So, you know, I really like two things most. I like this this thing we've already been talking about, this idea that you would just know that a certain amount of money is going to come in. I also really, really like the idea of cash. And that's what I've been thinking a lot about coming out of the diaries is that often what people need is something that falls through the cracks of our social services, right? So we tend to provide government assistance for specific things, right? Specifically for food or specifically for education or specifically for healthcare. And yet what somebody might need is a few hundred dollars because their car broke down and they're not going to get paid till next week, but they've got to fix it now. Or they need a big amount of money, you know, $1,500, $2,000 to pay for in advance for this summer's childcare. And we don't have any good delivery mechanisms for the more amorphous needs that just don't fit neatly into programmatic goals, but are real. So I really, really think that the the core idea of let's give some people cash is critical. So one of the concerns people have about giving people cash is maybe they won't use it for the right thing, but I really think the diaries provides more evidence for the the alternate thesis, which is what I believe, which is that people are making the best choices they can within the constraints that they have. So generally people, if they have money, they use it for what they think they need most. So those are the things I really like about the basic income. In terms of concerns, I mean, I I think, you know, I don't have anything new to add to the progressive criticisms that, you know, perhaps from a political perspective, you'd, you'd give up a lot of other social services in exchange for basic income. But as somebody who's not a, you know, I'm not a politics person. I don't know what the political results would be. I feel like that's a a reasonable question to have, you know, but that's about how you get there and what choices we make versus is it actually the right idea? You know, one of the things I also do think about a lot is the amount. So I think it is worth thinking about a small UBI, if you will. Like what happens if instead of giving everybody a baseline amount, you say everybody has access to this smaller amount when they need it, but you know, you can get it if you, if you need it. And, you know, in some ways that's just an expanded EITC or 
making new versions of the EITC available. But I think there's something to that because I'm just not sure. It, it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, I'm not sure if even the big versions of EITC will be enough to deliver stability. And yet what I saw in the diaries was that often what people really need is a flexible bridge from now until when some problem resolves, or they just need a little boost. And, or I should say, they would just benefit from a little boost. You know, they would probably be happy to take far more than a little boost. So I don't know. I I feel like I personally struggle a little bit with the amount question. Like, what are we actually trying to accomplish when we choose the amount of the UBI? And can we actually accomplish it? You just mentioned the, the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit. Are there other programs similar to UBI that you're interested in? I'm going to spend a lot of time over the next year looking more at other kinds of emergency cash assistance. So most communities, is my understanding, have some kinds of cash assistance available. But I don't know well enough what the landscape of that is, and I want to understand it better. And I think that if we understood that better, we that would probably give us some insight into what kinds of cash assistance people are using today and what the gaps are. And probably the providers of those kinds of cash assistance programs would have some insight into this issue. Great. Well, that was all our questions. Any other thoughts you want to share, Rachel? No, I think this is um, really terrific. I do think there's a lot still to learn about UBI, but it's an exciting conversation. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth pointing out that, I mean, every single book talk that I've given about the diaries, one of the questions from the audience is always about this policy. Whether I'm in Savannah, Georgia, or San Francisco, there's somebody in the audience who's, here's what we're saying people are experiencing, and their mind goes to this. And I think that's really a testament, one, to like how quickly the interest in this policy idea has grown, which is amazing and, and really pretty unusual. But it's also, it's to me that it's, it's, it suggests there's something really important in this idea. It's nice to know that it's spreading nationally. It's easy to, to wonder what's going on outside of our little bubble <laughs> in the Bay Area. Yeah, exactly. No, I've gotten that question in Chicago, Dallas, Savannah, St. Louis, We could go on and on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. Terrific. Thanks so much for having me on. That was Rachel Schneider, author of The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty, which is a new book, um, which is on sale now. It's really good to get a fuller picture of financial instability today because the numbers don't really tell the story of what's going on in people's lives. And so to understand what kind of choices people are making, the struggles that they have to deal with and how it changes throughout the year, I think is is quite telling. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's easy to quote a number, but actually hearing about people's experiences. I was particularly struck by the story that she told about the uh, the person who is willing to sacrifice a higher-paying job for a lower-paying one simply because they got more stability from that. I think we often talk about people want stability, but seeing those concrete cases where people are willing to give up money, literally, in order to get it, I feel like is quite compelling. Yeah, it shows you the toll it takes to constantly be thinking about, you know, how much is coming in, how much you have to spend, you know, are, are you going to dip below zero or do you need to like come up with cash from somewhere? And the programs we have today are targeted toward the neediest people, but they often miss people who, you know, might have a, a dip in a certain part of the year or, you know, aren't very um, able to manage a, a moment of need. 
Yeah, I thought her point about how she likes cash because it fills in the holes was also a really, really important one. And it goes back to the importance of looking at basic income as something that supports and strengthens the social safety net. Right. It's yeah. not she's not saying that cash solves everything. She's saying that there are certain things that you need cash to solve. Because yeah, you just there. can't predict everything that's gonna go right, wrong. Exactly. And I also thought it was a really interesting thinking about a lot of the cause of that instability coming from the shifting of risk from corporations onto people and that mm-hmm. now companies have figured out these systems where they can dynamically adjust how long someone's shift is or what their capacity like literally over the course of a day. And so that's great for their bottom line, but it makes things so much less predictable for people out there and really speaks to why there is such a need now for greater stability. Right, because that stability used to come from the companies themselves, and the less that becomes the case, the more you need some kind of external floor. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thanks to our producer, Eric Davidson. Uh, Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice, and we'll see you next week.